Okay, apparently today there's a, like an American football game in town. Carolina Panthers. Somebody has four tickets to them that they're willing to give away to anybody who, who wants them. The downside is you'll have to watch the Carolina Panthers play. <laughs> and it's raining. But I'm serious. If uh, if, come to me afterwards. First one who comes to me, and we'll let you have those Carolina Panther tickets. Today, we're going to start talking about joy, a three-week series on joy called Yoke. You'll understand the terminology yoke while we, by the time we get to the end of the message. But why are we talking about <clears throat> joy? A couple of reasons. One is that it's a really good thing. You know, in my, my, in my own mind, this is how I, I term joy. Joy is a, a, a deep, a profound sense of happiness or contentment. Joy is a good thing. And so more of it, less despair, that'd be great. Second thing is, I think it's pretty elusive. We all know we'd like to experience and live with joy, but it's pretty elusive. And at times it feels like this time of year mocks how elusive it is. It's the happiest time of the year. The songs all say it. It's the hap- happiest season of all. And there's lights and there's, you know, presents and all that sort of stuff. And you all remember that. You may still have this. But, you know, the, the Christmas moment every year after the gifts are open, you go, is that it? It doesn't matter. You could have given $4 billion worth of gifts. And there's that sense of, is, that, is there anything else to open? You know, my parents used to give so many presents. Really, stunning amounts. You'd walk un- and look under the tree and presents were everywhere. And then by the end of, you know, the carnage, we'd get there and we'd look and go, is there anything else? Just hoping there was another gift there somewhere. Well, joy seems elusive. Hard to have and hard to hang on to as much as we'd like it. So today, from a passage in, uh, in Matthew chapter 11, which is one of the, the gospels, one of the stories of Jesus' life, and talked to you about Jesus' take on joy, which quite honestly is counterintuitive and pretty powerful in terms of how we experience joy in our lives. But to start that off, I want to talk to you about physics. Seriously. And it won't go too deep because I don't know that much physics. However, I do know this. We're going to talk to you about the physics of joy. Physics, in terms of weight, works like this. Weight is not a constant. Mass is. What weight is is the combination of mass and the force, the gravitational pull that's placed on it. So... For example, when Neil Armstrong went to the moon, when Neil Armstrong was on the earth, he weighed 180 pounds. Now, that same Neil Armstrong with the exact same mass, he had lost no appendages, and yet on the moon he weighed 30 pounds because the force being exerted on him was far less. On the way to the moon, while he's in the spaceship, he weighed zero. Now, this is the same Neil Armstrong with the exact same amount of mass. He was exactly who he was. But all weight is, is the mass times the gravitational force, the drag that's placed on it. How that works today as we're talking about the physics of joy is this. Jesus will say joy, the weight of joy is light. What keeps us from joy is is the things that drag us away from it. See, my opinion, bolstered, I feel very confidently, by the teachings of the Bible is this. Joy is your natural state. 
It's not something you manufacture. It's not something you build. Joy is the natural state of the human being. It's what you were made for. How do I know this? There's a passage in the Old Testament which says this about God. In, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forever. God, the creator of the universe, is a being of infinite joy. It is the state that he lives in, and we are made in his image. Your natural state is joy. It is not something to be manufactured or to be built. What happens, though, in the course of our life is drag, weight things hang on us and pull us away from the joy for which we're made. And one of the things we'll explore today is what exactly is the drag on your life and how do you live above that? I'm going to look at a passage, and it's, as I said, in Matthew chapter 11, and it ends with a verse that you may be familiar with where Jesus invites people to come to him. Everybody who's weary and burdened, and he's going to give us rest. But the passage begins with the situation, the circumstance in which Jesus says that. And I, I'm going to walk through the entire thing because I just want you to watch. We so often view biblical passages as, you know, cross-stitch verses. We pull them out of context, and there you go. Jesus didn't say a series of verses like, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He didn't just, like, give a series of little statements one after another. You know, it's not like fortune cookies. He was talking in the midst of life. I want you to hear the context in which Jesus utters this counterintuitive phrase of the lightness of joy and the rest that he offers for our souls. So here's the situation. And start in verse 2 of chapter 11. And it says this, When John, who was in prison, and it's the opening part of the passage, when John, who was in prison, John is Jesus' cousin, known by us as John the Baptist. He was Jesus' cousin. And they were close, and he was the one who went before Jesus to herald his coming. And he's in prison now. He's been taken into prison for speaking out against what one of the rulers was doing. He will later be beheaded at the whim of the daughter of the ruler. So here's Jesus' life situation as he's going to talk to us about rest and joy. His cousin is in prison and is going to be beheaded. It's not a promising start. It goes on. It says, when John was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, somehow I feel the weight of that statement on Jesus. Here is John, his cousin, who is the one who is coming before him. And as he looks at the life of Jesus, he says, I don't know, are you it? A sigh, a heavy sigh, a critique, a weight a challenge to his life, to his authority, to his purpose. Even the ones closest to him are going, really, are you it? What do you got for us? So Jesus responds, and this is what he says. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. It's like, all right, that's a, that's a fair bit of stuff there. Okay, go tell John all this stuff. Good enough for him? 
You know, does this convince him I might be the real one? But then, rather cryptic statement on the end of that. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. What does that tell me? He's living in the midst of opposition and conflict. This is not smooth. You know, if you see those pictures of Jesus, like in um, churches or museums, you know, and he's smiling, his fingers are always like this. No one knows why. <laughs> Actually, I had arthritis from being a carpenter. Just kidding. <laughs> Hang with me. <clears throat> he has a halo around his head and he's smiling. Not so much. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on the count of me. This is going to be a life filled with opposition. It's not going to go easily. Now, there's a little segue there. This whole thing flows, really. I see this as a stream of consciousness of Jesus. John, his cousin, is in prison and is asking questions. Jesus answers those questions, and it raises up some issues within him. And he begins in the next little section by saying, look, I just want you to know who John is. I mean, he's big. There's, there's not been, I know he's in jail. Do not define him by what's happened to him. There's really none in the kingdom of heaven who's greater than John. But then he moves on. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now I'm going to read it to you in the NET. Because I, this I think is a more accurate rendition. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence and violent people have been raiding it. You know what that means? I don't either. I'm pretty convinced no one does, quite honestly, but I know it's not good. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence and violent people have been raiding it. People have wondered for a couple thousand years what exactly was Jesus talking about. And they're making up all sorts of different, but we don't know exactly what he means by that. But what we do know is this is not good. It's a battleground. The life of Jesus was not this nice, smooth thing. He was tossed into the middle of humanity, and challenges rose on every side, and there was a battle for the souls of individual uh, people. Our lives in this world are not lived in a vacuum. They're lived in the midst of conflict. Jesus recognizes that, and he says, this is a pitched battle. And then he moves on. At the end of it, he says... He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that reminds me, serious, I do see this. Jesus is like, that reminds me of something. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now let me talk to you about this generation that I'm speaking to. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and they're calling out to one another, we played the fruit flute for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't mourn, for John came neither eating nor drinking. They say he has a demon, the son of man, that's his term for himself, came eating and drinking. They say here's a glutton and a, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He essentially says, what do you people want? Seriously, what will make you happy? Anything? John the Baptist is an ascetic. He's out in the woods, he's eating bugs and honey. And what do you say about him? He has a demon. Fine. So here am I, and I'm not living out in the desert. I'm living among the people. I'm eating and drinking like a normal human being. And what are you calling me? A drunkard and a glutton, a friend of sinners. What do you people want? What will make you happy? Seriously. 
Tell me what will make you happy. Catch 22. No matter what I do, you're going to find fault. See, I don't see this. He's looking out at that audience, and it just sort of revs up. It goes from John's in jail. He's asking questions. John is the greatest one in the kingdom of heaven, and it's, it's, it's been a violent thing. We're battling for the lives of souls. And let, let people hear this. And by the way, will you all hear anything? Seriously, what will make you people happy? By the way, I'm not speaking to you people when I say that. I'm, you know, in character. <laughs> what will make you people happy? Anything at all? And that reminds me. See, he moves on. He's gone from what will make you people happy to woes. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to this guy's? No, he'll go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have been remained to this day. But I tell you, there'll be more bearable for Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. Seriously, he's on a roll. No matter what I've done here, let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. Raise the dead, heal the sick, blind the sea, lame walk, and you don't believe. You find your life critiquing the fact that I went to a party, people. Okay, so it wasn't that pleasant a situation. Friends in jail and questioning him. People around him who, no matter what he said, found a way to critique it. A refusal of a generation and whom he is pouring his life into to believe. Happy, happy, joy, joy. It's not a happy situation. There is nothing in those circumstances that produces joy. They are drag. They are weight on his life. And in the midst of that, he utters this statement, which turns the whole passage. At that time, it's important, at that time, that moment, he's just finished his rant against a series of cities. At that moment, Jesus said, I praise you. I just find that interesting. At that moment. See, the author's real clear there. I want to make sure you understand. In this flow of this statement, at that moment, he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why? Because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. His life is defined by his relationship with his Father. That's where he finds the place of joy. That's where he doesn't have to manufacture joy. He can actually say, I praise you, Father. There is a place within me of peace and contentment and joy because in my connection with you, I am alive. In my connection with you, I know who I am and why I am here. In my connection with you, I am at my natural state. Joy. Peace. 
Jesus didn't float through life. He lived a hard life full of critique and judgment. Okay, so this week I wrote a, a, a letter to Jesus, seriously, and I titled it, Am I Whining? And I compared the struggles I experienced in life to his. I was doing pretty well until we got to the whole bearing the sins of the world and being nailed to the cross. There was significant drag on Jesus' life, as there is in yours and mine. There are things that are heavy. I don't want to minimize those. Today, you experience drag. You feel the weight, some of you, of financial pressures. Some of you feel the weight of relational struggles, marriage that's going poorly, perhaps failing, relationship with children that's gotten strained and difficult, the weight, perhaps, of disappointment that you don't have a marriage that's failing, you don't have a marriage. I don't know what the weight is on your life. I know there's significant drag. Jesus offers a counterintuitive approach to joy, not in spite of those things, in the midst of them. And here's what he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. So I, th I think we fit in that category. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is a, a harness, essentially, placed over the top at that time of two oxen, and they moved together, and it allowed the oxen driver to control them and to take them where he wanted them to go. The yoke was never viewed at that time as a positive thing. It was often viewed in the Old Testament as a symbol of oppression and slavery, the yoke of slavery, the yoke of oppression. It was the idea that some external weight is being forced on you and somebody is directing your steps where you do not want to go. You see, oxen never wake up in the morning and think, oh, please, place this wooden thing over my neck and connect me to another oxen and make me go work. And yet Jesus looks out at this crowd who has that view of what a yoke is and says, take my yoke upon you, for it's light. The idea of it is this. You're going to be yoked to something. Something or someone is going to lead you and direct you. A priority, a concept, a person, a circumstance will define and lead you. And Jesus is saying, you can't have two yokes. I'll give you one. Those are heavy. This one's light. Connect your life to me. It'll be light. Your burden will be easy. You will know the lightness of joy. You see, in our life, we experience significant drag. Jesus says, if you connect to me, 
I will keep you straight and not allow that drag to pull you away, to pull you down. See, we often get the concept of joy wrong. We try to build joy. For example, let's be real practical. If, if today you're experiencing a sense of despondency, depression, mild malaise, you, you know, it's just a little something. What do we do with that? Normally what we do with that is we f- try to find something that we can add into our life to counteract that. We try to build something into our life that's joy. We feel sad here, so we do this. We buy this, we go there, we see this, we do something in order to counterbalance the weight we feel in our life. But joy is not built. It's a function of not letting the drag of things that pull you away from that define your life. Jesus had the power to have his life defined by his relationship with his Father, not by what John the Baptist's situation was, not by John's questioning of him, not by the fact that he lived among a nation of critics who critiqued everything that he said, not by the refusal of people to believe the message that he brought, not by the fact that he knew that he was going to be betrayed and nailed to a cross. None of that defined him. It was no less real and no less heavy. His life was defined by his connection with his Father in heaven. That's who he was yoked to. That's how he stayed in his natural position of joy. You got dragged today. And I don't know exactly what it is, but you got things that weigh on you. And sometimes they almost feel like they're hanging there, don't they? There can be a heaviness and a burden to our lives. It's difficult to know what to do with it. Okay, critical point in the message. Isn't that fun when I do that? When I tell you, here it is. Critical point in the message. Here's why. There is a danger. This is for fun and and profit. Here's learning public speaking. There is a danger at any message at this point. Here's the danger. I give you two things that help you to live a life of joy. And I smile big and I send you on your way. Or I go, well, that's not, I can't make it that easy. And so I don't give you anything. And it's a vague platitude about, you know, there's joy here. So, in light of that, the two things I'm about to tell you, I do not believe will fix your life. I don't. I do believe we need to understand where joy comes from and where it doesn't, and that leads how we face our lives. Joy is your natural state. You don't build it. You reduce, and you connect. So the two questions I have for you today are this. Number one, define the drag. If you can define the drag in your life, if you can define that weightiest thing, understand that that is pulling you away from your natural state of joy. If you can define that weight, take that before God and a couple of friends and talk about it this week. See, the whole point of my am I whining thing was to define before God the drag. I was dealing with something very specific in what 
always helps me is to take that very specific thing and to bring it out and to speak it. There's a whole concept throughout the Psalms of when the people who are writing the Psalms and they're Old Testament songwriters, when they're writing those, they are speaking out their frustration. They are naming it and they're saying things like this. Why are you so downcast, my soul? What? What is it? And then they draw it out and they place it before God and they don't hide it. You need to identify the things that are weighing you down. Bring them before God, bring them before others and realize this, realize only this about that thing. It does not define you. That weight is not who you are. A failed marriage is not who you are. Someone who's not been able to have a relationship work the way you want is not who you are. You are because of the love and the passion of the God of the universe. You are a son or a daughter of God who has made you and has redeemed you if you'll have it. If you will have it, he will forgive you and you can live in the presence of he in whose fullness there's, in his presence there is a fullness of joy. The weight does not define you. It's hanging off of you. There is something very powerful about taking that weight and bringing it before God and others and identifying it and realizing how much you are defining yourself through it. And then... You connect. The, the, the metaphor of yoke is as simple as this. Jesus says, you and me, let's go together. Yoke yourself to me. Other yokes will be heavy. This one will be light because I'm, I'm for you and I'm inviting you into my presence where there is fullness of joy. The task of our life is not to build in things that produce joy. The task of our lives is to connect ourselves to the God for whom we were made and whose presence joy simply is. And so the other thing I call you to do today or this week is this. So one, identify the drag. Two, take this passage, Matthew 11. There's, we have it printed out on the transform kiosk. Take this passage and read it this week and read it multiple times. And then gather with a friend or two or your small group and talk about it. The small group curriculum, which is also online, goes through this passage as well and breaks it down. Take this passage and let it sink in. Why? <clears throat> you will define your joy through things that are not true of you. Why we go before the Bible and why we read it is because it defines reality. What God says we're like, who God says we are, and where joy is actually found. We've got to pace, place the truth in our hearts and minds. During the next year, <clears throat> starting in January, we are going to, as a church, lay before all of us the challenge and the opportunity to read through the entire New Testament in the course of a year. And it'll be called, it's called Project 345. We did not come up with that name. It's on version. There's a Bible reading plan. We'll go more into that in the next few weeks. 
how you can connect with that. There'll be paper copies. There'll be online versions. But we're going to be reading through the New Testament together in 2011. Why? Because we want to put ourselves in a position to experience God. If we put ourselves in a position to experience God, we will return to our natural state. Christianity is not building up our lives into something they never were. It's a return to what we were always meant to be, a child of God who's loved and lives in his presence. That's what I invite you into. The gospel is nothing more or less than the story of the Son of God coming to earth amidst a series of struggles and laying down his life for you to forgive you and to usher you back into his presence forever. And in this passage, he says, come, all of you. I invite you into a relationship where you experience joy and rest for your souls. And so today, as we go to communion, <clears throat> it is the picture of what Jesus did in order to bring us back to our natural state. 